Welcome to my den. Y'all are in for a treat today because I got to sit down with the legendary Sean Shepard, who is an active mentor to dozens and dozens of the most incredible tech startups. I mean, he's literally involved in Y Combinator with 500 plus startups with companies on the NASDAQ index. Like this man is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to startups and innovation and all things tech. Today's conversation is riveting because Sean has a wealth of stories and examples and, and real parallels to show of what makes a startup successful. So if right now, like me, you're in complete venture mode and you're really wanting to get inside the mind of the people sitting on the opposite side of the table from you, you know, the sharks, the guys who are making the decisions um, and and gals, I won't, won't forget myself in there. So the guys and gals making the decisions on the other side of the table about um, which companies are investable, which founders are investable, then you're going to love today's episode. Pay special attention to what Sean has to say about the qualities that he looks for in a startup founder and in a company that's investable. Some of them are no surprise and others are pretty interesting, fascinating when you get inside of his head. Sean is the managing partner at U Plus, which is such, just go check them out. Like they're literally a startup incubator advisory firm for the most legendary tech startups that are coming out of the woodwork right now. And especially with all the things happening with AI, they are leading the, the forefront of developing companies that are AI powered and AI focused. Um, in fact, they just launched an exciting new um, enterprise venture discovery AI platform, which condenses three months of concept discovery and strategic planning into just one hour. And literally, you can take this tool as a startup founder and use it to do mock conversations with potential investors. It just looks so cool. I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. Now, you may have noticed that some things have shifted on this podcast. We are in complete venture mode right now with the launch of Diskills. And the most exciting happening coming up is in the Diskills community of uh, Gen Z plus GPT or Gen Z plus AI tech, we have launched the first ever GPT Innovators Cup. And this is the first of its kind competition where Gen Zers will compete to build a business this summer in 2023 in July uh, using AI tech. And we're awarding $2,000 in prizes. The top winners are going to get to go on Follow Your Different, which is Chris Lockhead's um, podcast that has over a million downloads per episode. And the winners will also have the chance for their companies to be seen by amazing venture capitalists and investors like Sean. So if you've got a kid uh, between ages 14 and 30, and this is something they're interested in exploring or just learning the new horizons and possibilities of AI, they should join us. Just go to deskills.io, that's deskills.io, and they can register. 
Also, Sean, if you enjoy our conversation today, is a phenomenal follow on LinkedIn. Just find him at Sean Shepard and uh, you won't be disappointed. He publishes just amazing articles that are relevant to not just startup founders, but anyone who's a leader in a business that is innovative and looking to really change the future. So without further ado, hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Sean Shepard. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Sean, I am excited to have you today. And uh, because I just like to have a sort of untraditional intro to to any show that I do with with an amazing person like you, I have to ask, and maybe maybe this is not even a relevant question, but in all your experience working with, you know, all of these different VC-funded startups and meeting, I'm sure it's in the thousands of startup founders and seeing the different types of people who come through that 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 pipeline, I guess you could say. I'm really curious, from your side of the table, say, you know, I say I'm the person coming to you as as a new startup founder and you're the VC and I'm trying to get funding. What secrets do you find that young entrepreneurs or just new entrepreneurs maybe withhold or information they withhold from VCs that would be a whole lot better off if just everybody at the table knew? Um, wow, that's a good question. Um, I would say it's less about individual examples and it's more just about whether or not they are intentionally withholding information, if you can sense that. Um, because if they're not being honest with me, they're certainly not being honest with themselves. And that's the real problem. Um, cause that tells me that they're not open to feedback necessarily. And if they're not open to feedback, their journey to finding product market fit for their idea is going to be a lot longer and tougher than they, than it should be. Um, and, and, um, and if they're not being honest with themselves, um, they're not what I would call alert at all, right? I don't want you to be, I don't want you to tell me what you know. I want you to tell me what you don't know and how you're going to find out um, to be a learn it all instead of a know it all uh, and have that growth mindset, right? That you embrace ambiguity. Um, you replace the word rejection in your vocabulary with feedback and you view feedback as a gift and that your focus is on the problem and the customer, not on the product or the technology. Because most of these things fail, not because they can't build a product or a tech, they fail because people in markets, um, and those are the. That's where their focus should be. This is this is so good. I so to to back up and highlight something that you just said. So what I'm hearing you say is that if someone is is not being honest with the people they're pitching to, the VCs they work with, the investors, what it really is showing is a reflection of the fact that they may not being may not be 
honest with themselves about what whether whatever it might be, product market fit, you know, literally whatever the situation is. It's not that they're intentionally withholding information because you're going to be shocked. You've seen everything, right? Yeah. It, it's just that they're not they may not be honest with themselves that it, this is not going to work or maybe their strategy is is not, you know, not going in the correct direction. It like from your again, your seat at the table. Um, I'm going through this right now with, you know, we've got our seed fund launch or actually it's more of a bridge loan into the series A, all that jazz and it always stuns me how many, especially young entrepreneurs I speak with who think going into funding rounds or a conversation that they can just withhold information and no one's going to find out. And I'm sitting there thinking, people like Sean, the Sean's at the table have seen literally everything under the fucking sun. What what do you think you're going to hide? Like what what is going to So how do you sense that, Sean? Like, do you, does, does Sean have spidey sense? Like if someone's withholding information or if, if, you know, if you don't have a good feel about something? Uh, well, it is, it's, it's a combination of experience and, and, and instinct, right? Uh, somebody asked me on a podcast recently, you know, what would you tell your 20 year old self? And I would say, listen to your gut. You know, your body has an amazing capacity to tell you if something's not right. Um, and you need to trust those feelings and then unpack those feelings and figure out what those feelings mean and how, how to interpret those feelings. Um, and, and then also, from the perspective of an, of an investor and somebody who's been beating his head against the wall in the startup world for 30 years, um, you get to a place, if you're fortunate enough, um, where you, you learn that when you say yes to something, it means you're saying no to everything else. Um, and so it's important to learn how to default to no, um, and say yes only when you really are willing to say no to everything else. So the attitude I'm kind of giving you here is like, I don't need you, right? Um, there are, you know, when I was running my fund, we'd look at a thousand deals a year and we'd make, we'd write 10 to 12 checks. And it's not, and there's a whole host of reasons why you select those 10 or 12, but you're really stack ranking one pitch against another. It's not that this isn't a good idea or that you're not a good person or you know, you're not going to win. You know, I've passed on many a unicorn, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, you have to take this attitude of, um, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't line up or, you know, the old, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, acts like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Um, and so if you're getting that kind of feeling, um, you want to dig into it to clarify it. So you ask more questions, more difficult questions to see if that pattern of behavior continues and say the old heart rate gets elevated, the tone changes, the eyes dart, you know, all the things they teach you about how to detect liars in FBI school. Um, and so if the feeling isn't right, then trust that feeling. This, this is so good. This is gold for literally any, any startup founder. They've got to hear this. But I, I want to jump ships here to another question that's maybe tangential to this, but I've always been curious. When you as a VC are looking at different investments, 
I'll ask the question then provide some context. So would you say that you, Sean, as someone who's been in VC, is, you know, watching for those unicorns, et cetera, would you ever survive on Wall Street as a part of a hedge fund? And I'll I'll say this to back up one of my good friends and I, he's my mentor and like, you know, Padawan, he's Obi-Wan. And uh, anyway, we were talking about this recently, this idea of the the Adobe acquisition of Figma. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, when you're in the VC world, you're used to taking extensive risk, right? And thinking about the long term, not just short term returns, all that jazz. Well, on Wall Street, you know, people are going berserk right now about the acquisition of Figma because they're like, you know, what, you know, why the fuck would you spend this much money, Adobe, on acquiring this company that has, you know, very little uh, actual revenue? And uh, we were talking about this, and and he reminded me, of course, this was when I was pretty young. You know, I'm 24, I guess. What year was this? When when YouTube was acquired, right? It was mm-hmm. like, what, $1.6 billion, and they had 10 employees, and everyone on Wall Street was going berserk, right? Because... One of the best buys ever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we, uh, Lockhead and I were talking about this, like, Adobe's smart, right? There's whole, this whole new emerging category that's a long-term play, but it's a whole new emerging category of no code technology, right? Yep. And Adobe's instead of deciding to build a competitive, uh, you know, just like Google Plus tried to compete with Facebook and all these other social medias, instead they're like Pac-Man and they ate it, right? They 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 acquired Figma instead of trying to create a competitor product. And I sit here as you know someone who's a startup founder and Lockhead who's invested as a VC and in, in a whole bunch of companies and. We're saying, well, this was brilliant, right? The equivalent of YouTube getting acquired when it was very small. So yep. to go back There's to my Microsoft, question. Microsoft said the same thing to Microsoft about acquiring LinkedIn for $26 billion. 100%, 100%. So, so my question is, you know, when you, you know, 20, 30 years ago, given your long career in VC, what's the difference between someone who has that long-term view of, you know, of markets, of categories, of profit potential versus the Wall Street guys who seem to want, you know, <laughs> want money the second an acquisition happens. Like, what's the difference in mindset and 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 can you play in both or do you choose one? What's your perspective? Well, uh, so there's a couple of things to unpack here. Um, so, you know, Wall Street's a very transactional mindset, right? Um, it's all about... Um, like you said, quarterly earnings. Um, and so that's how they think about things. Um, and most of those folks have never built a technology company, right? They don't know what it's, they don't have a strategic understanding of why Adobe did that. Now, why did Adobe do that? It's a classic innovator's dilemma example. Um, they're too big and too slow and too legacy and too bureaucratic to build what Figma built. Um, and also they recognize that your generation, let's look at who's using Figma versus who's using Adobe. There's no Gen Zs and millennials using Adobe. They're using Figma, right? We use Figma every single day in my company to create prototypes for our corporate innovation clients. And my UX designers skew towards Gen Z and definitely millennial and Gen Z. And it's not cool to use Adobe. <clears throat> it's cool to use Figma. And believe it or not, it's a status symbol, right? And people virtue signal around their statuses all day at cocktail parties or online or wherever else. 
and it's cool to use Figma. It's not cool to use Adobe. So what are the, what are the pockets of opportunity for anybody who's trying to identify a, a white space to play in, in a market that's really big, that they think they can solve a problem really well, is creating a cooler version of what already exists. And that's what Figma did. And it was a brilliant acquisition because they figured out very quickly that they were not going to be able to compete and convert the Figma, um, the, uh, the Figma cult back to Adobe. Right? So in the long term, it's going to be a huge win for them. Um, but short-term Wall Street, you're going to see a dip, and then it'll come back, and everything will be fine in a couple of years. And just like Oracle and SAP and IBM and Microsoft and Intel, you know, these guys stay on top because they own the relationships with their customers, and they recognize when um, they're better off buying than building. Yeah, you're so so right. So much to unpack here because it's like these legacy companies and and I would love your thoughts on this too, but it seems like so many legacy companies are holding on to the to their supers, right? Their super consumers that they've had for years, whether it's Microsoft, Adobe before this acquisition and I'm sitting here as a Gen Zer thinking something's going to have to give. I mean, I think you and I talked last time, you know, few weeks ago about, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong about the statistic, you said that since 2000, half of the S&P 500 doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Is roughly. that a correct statistic? Yeah, that's, that's roughly about right. I think it's my pinned tweet for um, that data. But And, and a third of the, of the S&P 500 in the year 2030 doesn't exist yet. Um, and the rate and pace of change in today's innovation economies never been faster and it's just going to continue to accelerate. And, you know, if you don't adapt, you are going to die. Um, that doesn't mean you can't reinvent yourself tomorrow. I think everybody can and everybody should. Um, but but uh, you have to stay out in front to stay relevant. And that means understanding the Gen Z demographic versus the millennial demographic versus the Gen X versus the boomers etc. Greatest generation, all of them, whatever's coming after Z. Alpha? Alpha. I, I, I always, I've always wondered who decides these things. You know, I know. What are these, who, who picks these names? But anyway, um, uh, it's like hurricanes. We start, I guess you go back to A, right? Um, I guess. Kind of a hurricane. We can't come up with anything more creative. It's just, yeah. <laughs> that, that's just what it is. It's, it's the market version of a hurricane, though. It really is, right? Um, but you, but that's that's the reality of, you know what, what you're seeing. Thank you for that. And let me ask you this: so, in the world of you know marketing and how how the entire way we do business is shifting right now, I'm seeing this fundamental shift from the idea of the knowledge worker to what I'm seeing begin to emerge as something called the intellectual capitalist. I'm really curious to get your thoughts from a VC standpoint and investment standpoint here. So the knowledge worker, you know, in general, people tend to have the idea of like a lawyer or doctor, some specialist come to mind, right? Peter Drucker talked about it. It was the fact that you have 
people who make money off knowledge. And we've been in that age for a, a few decades now, right? But now, fundamentally, within the past couple of years, we've been shifting into this new horizon, the intellectual capitalist. And uh, again, there's this contrast between the idea of even the American dream and the digital American dream, which is fundamentally shifting how we as Americans can you know, live, work, and play, et cetera. So this the shift from knowledge work to people being able to create exponential income flywheels. Let's say, you know, to take an example, if you're a doctor, let, let's say you're a surgeon, you have a very specific specialty. Well, instead of now just exchanging your time for money and your, your knowledge for money, you can now go on, you know, Podia and create a course where yeah. you teach other surgeons, right, how to do this. And doesn't it takes you the same time to create one video if you have one subscriber, if you have 20 million subscribers. So there's yep. this idea of exponentiation. So I'm curious from your perspective in VC, how is the world of VC changing or not changing with this fundamental shift into these businesses that with, you know, very, very little funding or, you know, a few subscriptions can now become multi-million dollar companies um, and I'll give you one example. This may make it pretty, pretty tangible. I have a couple of friends. They have a company called Ship 30. And they were both, uh, I believe, literature majors, English, something like that in college. And their professors told them if they, if they want a best-selling book, the process is you have a great idea. You go out in a cabin. You sit in your cabin for five months. You come up with some brand, you know, great idea. Then you come back and you pitch it. And then you maybe land a deal and then you, you know, sell your book and it may or may not be successful. Well, of course, that's not the way we think about you know, writing nowadays, but what they did is they went out and started an academy, Ship 30, where they train people to write online, to write digitally. Well, their business is now several million dollars in revenue. They have zero employees. It's completely, it's cohort-based, you know, digital cohorts. Mm -hmm. If they went to an investor, you know, and said, we've got a multi-million dollar business with no employees and a 95% profit margin with a tech component, like, I mean, it's it's like insane, I would imagine. So yeah. your seat at the table, what, what, how, how are we, how are you guys kind of viewing that shift? Is, does investing strategy change? Does it stay the same? No, it's changed. It's changed. So a couple of things around this. Um, we now live in the age of applied technology where it's never been easier or cheaper to get products into the market. And as a result, it's never been more difficult to get traction for them. But the winners can scale infinitely, almost. Um, and because we live in the um, age of infinite leverage, and Naval Ravikant talks about this, founder, angelist, friend of mine, fantastic, one of the best follows on the internet. Um, Naval says we live in the age of infinite leverage. And that means what are the things you can leverage? You can leverage people. You can leverage capital. You can leverage technology. And you can leverage media. And what you described with Ship 30 is a perfect example of that. Right? Um, so the way that we're investing now is we're giving less money to more companies earlier on with an eye on where that scale, where product market fit exists and where scale exists, and then pouring more money into those once that's been found. 
that's 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 the fundamental investment thesis shift that's happened in the last you know five to ten years because applied technology means you know anybody can do it uh but who gets adoption for it right and how, and that measured by the cost acquire customer over the customer lifetime value and what's that ratio um and if you can demonstrate that you can crush it i'll give you a good example one of my Partners in the GrowthX Fund was Will Bunker. He founded what became Match.com in the early 90s. He was uh, a, working for an oil company and traveling around the world, and he hated it. And he was going to dangerous places, and he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And he got interested in the internet. <clears throat> so he was like everybody else. He was on the old AOL chat rooms, um, trying to figure out what people were doing. And most of them were looking for love. They were looking for human connections. He called it um, solving for loneliness. And so he started oneandonly.com in Dallas, Texas in the early 90s when if he told anybody in the Bible Belt what he was doing for a living, they would literally physically back away in fear. Um, and now that's the way everybody does it, right? And meanwhile, Match.com went out. And by the way, he only raised uh, 90000 bucks from his former boss. He had a business partner, um, uh, decided to do this together. And um, they found a repeatable, predictable, scalable customer acquisition channel through affiliate marketing. Hey, Mr. Website Owner, just put this little, you know, drop this pixel in with this little uh, um, square ad that drives people to our website. And we'll pay you 20% of the revenue whatever it is, right? And they, their average customer lifetime value is $28, I want to say, because the average person would stay on for about three months where they found love. Um, and their cost to acquire a customer was like three bucks. And so they found something that they could repeat. So they just reinvested all of their capital, never went out and raised any more money reinvested the $23 or $24 margin back into more uh, customer acquisition because they found that product market fit as measured by the CAC LTV ratio in that fashion. And Match.com burned through their money and really was just a failure. Um, Ticketmaster acquired these guys for 50 million bucks um, and also acquired Match for... 10 million or less, and then just basically took the match name and put it on oneandonly.com. And oneandonly.com has powered match ever since. Um, and it was because they could find product market fit, right? And they understood the real problem they were solving. Um, whereas match was very high profile, raised a bunch of money, didn't get that kind of traction, burned through the cash. This is, this is so good. Do you have any examples, maybe it's companies that U Plus is involved with that, you know, projects you're actively working on where a, you know, a company does have this approach where it's, you know, they're, they found ways to scale. They have found, you know, this unique, maybe they, they were a multi-million dollar company before even coming to you guys, even asking for money. Like, what, what are some, looking at like the past five years, modern day examples of companies that are really accelerating with this, this sort of mentality? Well, I think you look at, 
any of these um, businesses that are highly profitable right out of the gate, right? Hemingway is a good example. It's another writing application. Guy did it as a side hustle. Um, making money hand over fist. Never took outside money. Not interested. Things running and growing itself. And I think it's, I don't know. Last I heard it was doing maybe $12 million to $15 million in ARR. Um, you know, that's, a, that's a really good, good example. Um, New Books Network, which is an academic a site for academic books. Um, and a podcast and a whole media property that's all around promoting and publishing and sharing um, books from academics. Um, it's like the biggest you know, library on the planet for trying to learn things from an academic perspective. Um, there's a, I mean, there's, there's a ton of them um, out there. Uh, but at the end of the day, what are the attributes all these things share in common? Certainly they found product market fit, but I also would say they focused on it from day one. They were focused on the customer and the problem, not the product and the technology. They were focused on developing their markets and making money, not on developing products and raising money. And it goes back to the first question we talked about, about founders. One of the reasons, one of the big things I learned early on is I wanted to be a value-added investor. I, wanted, I cared more about giving people help than giving them money. And when you deliver that message to the world, there are two kinds of people. They're the people who um, want your help and they're the people who want your money. Um, and what you really have to assess for is what we used to call the difference between pre-check and post-check behavior. Because these folks will tell you anything you want to hear, at least that's what they think, uh, when they're asking for money. And that's a transactional mindset, a transactional person, and I'm not interested in that. Um, I want to build a relationship and I want to add value. Um, and you don't find out oftentimes until after you've written a check and they, they stop answering your phone calls, responding to your emails, right? Because as a VC, you don't have ownership of control. You know, you're there to provide capital access to your network and strategic advice when they ask for it. But you can't really do much more than that. You just don't have the power to do that. That's the model. Um, but I learned from my own experiences of being an entrepreneur with three exits that I want, I have something to offer to these guys and girls. Um, and if they're not interested in that and they don't see the value in it, then it's not a fit because it's not going to go well. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So good. Every founder needs to hear that. Every founder. Okay. Shifting gears a little bit. We're in, I guess, a recession that no one wants to call a recession right now. How does that affect VC? Um, still the same amount of dry powder sitting on the sidelines. Uh, they're just being more um, uh, selective with how they deploy it and to who. Um, but technology is not going to stop coming at us. Uh, how we use it isn't going to stop changing, evolving, and growing. Um, and some of the best unicorns, uh, of the last decade started during the last recession. And I've been through, what is this going to, I guess people, this will be the fourth one for me at my age. I'm 50 now. So, you know, I've seen the cycles. They typically run seven to eight years of good times. And then you've got, you know, one to two, three years of bad times. Now this one's been ridiculously extended, um, because we kicked, 
down, cut the can down the road by just printing money. Um, and the pandemic hits and then the stimulus and then the printing of the money due to mass hysteria, uh, the shutting down of businesses uh, and then the rising inflation and interest rates, um, the war in, in, in Europe. I mean, all these things are the perfect storm for a shit show. But I will also tell you, a really good friend of mine happened to be at the house yesterday, and he's been advising my leadership team on, 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 on strategy and, and some executive coaching and things like that. And this guy, I won't name names and I won't tell you which company, but he did run a $20 billion a year business unit for one of the largest tech companies in the world. And uh, for almost 30 years. And I asked him for his perspective on what's coming. And he said, it's not going to affect tech the way you think. Um, it's going to affect a lot of other industries, but tech is becoming one of the more resilient industries because of the adoption of technology broadly across the world is continuing to increase and will continue to increase. And the, uh, the, the lack of skilled uh, workers in tech um, is also uh, going to insulate the employees in that, in those companies. Um, in fact, they're still getting them raises. I know that in my business, that's happening too. Um, it's hard to find people. Uh, it's a very competitive market in tech. And then there are resilient industries and counter-cyclical industries, right? Physical needs businesses, right? Food, water, air, shelter, you know, energy, utilities, um, uh, you know, um, mobility solutions. Um, there are, there are uh, the compliance industries, the things that you have to buy, right? Insurance. Um, those industries will continue. They'll be disrupted in their own ways uh, by new technologies, um, but they will continue to be resilient. And there's a company called LeadSIF that published this list of resilient companies at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, when everybody thought the sky was falling. Um, but again, I'm in the digital transformation and digital innovation as a service business. So my company has grown sixfold in the last two years because companies still have to do this if they want to survive. Um, and there's a strong value proposition for doing it because you can save money, right? Uh, and make more money um, if, you do it, if you implement it well. So it just depends on the industry that you're in. Um, but... Generally speaking, my attitude is, is that when things get hard, you just get harder. You just put your head down and you focus more on the core thing that, that allows you to survive. Because well, when the, only the strong survive and they just get stronger. Um, and you will see a lot of acquisitions, a lot of, a lot of roll-ups, a lot of changes um, where, the, where the, uh, you know, the strong eat the weak uh, during during a recession like this. Um, and that's just the nature of these cycles. But don't, this is just me. Um, don't, don't watch the news, you know, just, <laughs> you know, it, media is just food for your brain. If you're eating like crap, you're going to feel like crap. And if you're watching and listening to crap, you're going to feel like crap. Um, and I haven't watched the news in four years. 
no, I haven't put my head in the sand. I have just chosen to be happy. Um, and, you know, happiness doesn't sell in the media. Sadness and tragedy does. And, and you know, you kind of, a good friend of mine used to say, you find what you focus on. Um, and, and focus on what you can control, not what you can't. And, and, I, and I think that's never more true than in, you know, difficult times. Hundred percent. Well, and I'm sure that the founders who are resilient and who have that perspective are the ones who stand out. I mean, heck, I just interviewed a guy. His name's Yuri Filipchuk. He's Ukrainian. He was literally on the podcast with his shotgun next to him in Kiev, Ukraine, like sitting there. He's a startup founder in a metaverse slash microverse company trying to, to, to raise his series a from Ukraine yeah, well, while evacuating his team. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, dude, if this doesn't help your business, I mean, granted, we talked about the difficulties of war and everything on the show too, but like, he's just like, you know, this has made me stronger. I've been able to hire 10 people, you know, we're, we're our whole culture shifting because of this. And I'm just thinking if you got, if you get into, you know, back to Silicon Valley where you're trying to raise your series A, I bet every founder is going to look at you and go, this is the type of person I want to be invested in because not only are we in a recession, not only is Ukraine in a war, but he's still growing his startup in the midst of it. Like, the dude is is a you know one of my new heroes. <laughs> so anyway, well, it's like, that's why to your yeah, point. I, I'm a big believer in in Angela Duck, Duckworth's uh, work around grit, right? Which is the term she uses to describe what you what you're talking about, right? Um, I look for people. I look for gritty people with a growth mindset who share my vision and are willing to execute uh, and understand the current reality and are willing to run through walls uh, without compromising their integrity to get it done, right? And, and I look for the same thing in a founder. I call them cockroaches. You just can't kill them. I love that. No matter what happens, right? They just keep coming back. Now, hopefully they come back a little smarter, a little more insightful, and, and know how to learn faster uh, what works and what doesn't, and more focus on the customer and the market and the problem and the business model than the, the technology. But that's, you know, those are the key characteristics of, of successful people at large. I think. Okay, so this is interesting. I've always wanted to ask someone in your shoes this question. Cockroach, that's a great way to describe this. But when you say, you know, come back, be resilient, hopefully they come back, you know, a little better, a little smarter. What does that look like? Like, what's the journey of a cockroach and when does it cross the line of just harassment? <laughs> well, when I say cockroach, I don't mean bugging me. Um, I mean, continually trying to work and iterate and improve and, and, and survive the zero to one phase of building a business, right? Um, and, and everything from, you know, I mean, I ate ramen noodles and didn't pay, take a paycheck for years. I mean, yet people have no idea um, the crap you go through. And nobody wants to hear me complain about it. Um, I, I, and I'm not complaining, but I'm just trying to explain the reality of the situation. What are you willing to sacrifice? Um, sometimes I'll ask a founder when they're pitching me to walk me through their, their calendar for a week. 
because I'm looking for one thing. How much of their time is dedicated to its first revenue? Um, and that will tell me everything I need to know about what they care about, what they prioritize. Because half these people will just do what they want to do and what they're comfortable with. That's not what being an entrepreneur is. Being, it's living in the uncomfortable. It's Andy Dufresne in Shawshank Redemption. You know, you're falsely imprisoned for 18 years and you're chipping away at a wall. And then you walk, you know, you go through a sewer full of human feces. And then the reward is you get on the other side and you end up on a beach in a foreign country, sand in a boat with an old guy. Um, it's not, it's not as, it's overly romanticized. Um, you have to have the right DNA. You know, if, you, if it's not, if it's not calling you and screaming at you every day, then it's not for you. And that doesn't make you a bad person. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a venture capable business either. Right. People use this term in a derogatory sense, lifestyle business. Well, you know what? I know a lot of great lifestyle businesses that employ a lot of people and feed a lot of families and contribute a lot to the world. Um, and by the way, I'm at a place in my life where ownership control mattered to me more than scale um, because I've been burned enough too, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's about understanding who you are, what you, what you really, you know, what gets you up every day. Like to me, even at this age, after all I've done, I get up excited before dawn every day because I think technology can make the world a better place. And by working with big companies can make a bigger impact than I can, you know, I can help contribute to that. And that's what drives me. I like to be able to go, look, see that thing over there? We had a hand in getting that out into the world, right? And my team wants to feel that same sense of pride of ownership in doing that. And that's what drives us. And that's our culture. Um, and yeah, uh, that's my sort of take on, you know, what, uh, what an entrepreneur needs to be made up. There's so much to unpack here and, and it makes me, it, it makes me, you know, ask the question, which folks, you know, in my arena talk to me about all the time, which is, do you think that having, being, being the ramen noodle eating, you know, not buying anything for a few years entrepreneur is necessary to really reach the pinnacle of success? Or have you seen founders who haven't no. had to go through that? No, no, of course. I mean, one of the worst kind of founders is the first time successful one. Uh, <laughs> kind of a joke in the VC <laughs> community. Because you can't tell them anything because they already, they've been rewarded for their behavior. Even if their behavior wasn't right, and the market pulled them anyway. I've seen a lot of that. Um, but no, I, you don't have to fail um, big to win big. Um, but you know, what's the old office quote? You miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Um, or as Jordan said, you know, I missed, uh, 67% of every game winner I ever threw up, but I never stopped throwing them up. Um, there is something to be said for, um, never quitting. And I think that, 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 you know, the consistency and persistency, if that's even a word, consistent persistence of a founder um, has as much to do with success as anything. But are they also learning as they're doing it? Are they taking that feedback and they're actually changing their behaviors and modifying their approach 
and experimenting and A-B testing every aspect of their business on a daily basis to continue to improve? Um, and, and do they feel that sense of urgency? Like I get a knot in my stomach if I've got 30 minutes free on my calendar and I don't really know what to do with it. Um, and I, it, to this day, right? Like that's, if that's not there, it doesn't mean they're not going to be successful. But, and if they fail, hopefully they'll appreciate it more, right? Um, sure. And I think that's more of what I'm saying. Yeah. I hear you. So it's more, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's more about these, the output, those attributes that they're showing, the continuous learning, the consistency, the willingness to work hard, and not necessarily, even though I'm sure it influences it, where they came from. I'm sure yes. that there's... And, and there needs to be a genuine, authentic desire to help others. If that's not where you're coming from, um, then I would just say, why are you doing it? Um, because if that shines through to the world and to the people you're trying to help, um, and they are more likely to help you because of that. We were talking just off the air earlier. There's this new report out about Gen Z buying behaviors. And now 41% of Gen Z's, their very first step in the buying journey is to go to a review website before they even check out the person. I come from Gen X and I look at the boomers and their first thing is to look up the person who reached out to them, not the product. And I think that's a life experience thing. Because at the end of the day, if the product doesn't work, you don't choke the product. You need, you need, you need somebody's throat to choke. And so people want to do business with people they know, like, and trust and feel like they can help them make good choices. Um, and that's, you know, anyway, that's sort of my view on that. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. Okay, let's shift gears now into something interesting you said the very first time we talked that I wanted to unpack more. So I know you work with a lot of young founders, you said you have, you know, Gen Z and millennials on your team. And you said something to the effect of, and don't let me misquote you, but something to the effect of one of your like missions in life is to help build grit, resilience, and the, basically the ability to succeed in these young founders, young employees, young leaders. And you said something to the effect of if if you're a screen first human or a digital first human that it can be it can sometimes hamper your growth because you see the world a different way. Again, don't let me misquote you, but I really want to dig into this because you know, me as a, a digital first human and entrepreneur, I'm sure that I approach, you know, business building or innovation or things very differently than my parents would, for example. I, I mean, I know that for a fact. I've for the past couple years been working with my parents' real estate company and trying to help digitize it, bring innovation into it. And there are some very clear differences in how we approach business or or see tech and life and and pretty much every vantage point you could think of comes from a different perspective. So what have you seen in in your work with whether it's founders or employees on your team? Like what does it take to get a screen first or digital first human to build those skills of resiliency and grit and, and ultimately help them be successful. Yeah. I mean, so this all comes about because you've just watched in the era of social media in the last 20 years that people have gone beyond moderation 
in their use of, te- of tools and technology, and, and it's become a crutch to many people. And as a result, they become less connected. They're more connected to the internet and to the world, but they're less connected to people. Um, and if you want to stand out in today's world, first of all, let me tell you, all right, what's in it for you, right? You got to tell them what's in it for them. Uh, if you want to get them to adopt these behaviors and grow, um, what's in it for them is they can stand out. Um, and differentiation is everything. Um, you know, how do you stand out? How do you create a signal amongst all the noise? And it's my belief in today's world that you can stand out by being more intensely human. And so I look at everything as not a, from a business model perspective, not B2B or B2C or hardware, software, developed tech, applied tech, goods, services, whatever. I look at everything as age to age. It's human to human. The fastest way to find product market fit for what you want to do is to be intensely human with other humans. Um, humans you want to help. Try and understand what their problem is, how you can solve it, and what value that creates. And that should be the singular focus of any of them. That's why I gave you the calendar example earlier. You know, if they can't clearly articulate who their customer is, what they're going through, um, what the pains are associated with what they're doing and how they could help them and how they would measure that, then they, have, they don't have a business yet. Let me pause you there for just a second and ask how many founders pitch to you or that you meet don't have that defined. 90%. 90%? Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Very few know how to how? tell their story or clearly understand what exactly it is they're, they're providing to the world. And to be clear, is this 90% of the people pitching to you or are just, you know, yeah. med- learning from oh, yeah. you? 90%. It doesn't mean they, they won't. It just means they've never really been coached on how to think about this and how to approach it, right? And oftentimes, how to tell their story. Um, and uh, Andy Raskin wrote an article called The Greatest Pitch Deck I've Ever Seen about Zora. Um, and it's a fantastic framework to try to, un, you know, to, to tell your story to the world, particularly to investors. Right? It starts with, this is how the game used to be played. This is how winners are going to play it in the future. And this is how we're going to be successful in playing that game. Right? It's a, it's a narrative shift. There's some fundamental shift happening in the world. Um, Freddie Caress talks about this in his book, Zero to IPO. And he's one of the co-founders of Okta. And, and a friend of mine and the neighbor. And, and he, he talked about when they were pitching Zwar to Andreessen, it was, they were really ready to give up because they tried everybody. And this was in 2013, right in the height of the recession, 2012. And then it was a $40 billion you know, IPO, right? Um, but he talked about how, how they changed, how they told their story to Mark Andreessen is what got them their first 500K. And it was, look, every, everybody's moving to the cloud. They're going to have multiple passwords and need a way to manage it. Um, is that simple, right? Um, uh, Jack Dorsey did this with uh, Square, right? The number one thing that he was selling was trust. It had nothing to do with payment processing. Will Bunker with Match, solving for loneliness, right? I mean, if you can't articulate that, it, Einstein said it, right? If you can't 
if you can't explain it simply enough, you don't understand it well enough. Um, and most of them don't. You know, they get really excited about a cool technology or an idea. Um, they typically set product and technology and self-centric as opposed to customer and market problem-centric. And um, doesn't mean you can't flip that switch, but that's, that's the, the default approach from most founders. If someone comes in and they're that part of that 90% and they don't have their customer, the problem, the story defined, what's the first piece of advice you give them on how I to I give them a framework on how to tell that story, you know, to fix it. Um, and I literally give them a document that shows them here are the eight slides you need. I don't want to see a pitch deck longer than 12 slides. You can have an appendix out the wazoo. But if you can't tell your story really in eight slides or less, then, then it's not... It's not good. And what I ask them for is I want team, traction, market, model, and differentiation. And the, the number one thing is always team. I like to make the joke that in technology, it's not the hardware, the software that wins. It's the hardware. It's the people. Because at the end of the day, you write the check, uh, you go away, and it's up to them. So true. This is gold. Seriously. I mean, I, one of my good friends is a, you know, is what was, was one of the top performing VCs of the nineties and he's retired now. And we have great conversations all the time, but he'll tell me, you know, we were talking the other day about it, the importance of having a, you know, technical co-founder or having this Pied Piper effect, right? Because so many, so many entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs in particular walk into a room and think they have all the skills or they're not willing to hire someone. And he said that his top performing ventures, and maybe this is the same for you, you tell me, but he said one of the key factors that his firm looked at was the first five people that a founder could hire. Yep. It was the first five team members. Yep. And that pretty much determined the success of the venture. That is 100% is true. I just had a big, let's say, healthy um, discussion with one of our big corporate clients in one of their corporate ventures. And um, they have three core team members that are just amazing. Probably the best corporate founding team I've ever worked with. And I've told them that much. I wasn't blowing smoke. Um, and they need to hire a fourth person. And the corporation said, let us hire them. Then you can rent them out. And then if it works out, you can keep them. I'm like, no, 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 no. You are not going to get the kind of person you want. If you're selling big company, nine to five IT job that you get to go work on this cool project versus this is this amazing startup that's going to be a unicorn and you need, you're the fourth member of this team and you need to be this kind of person. It's a very different thing. Jim Collins writes about this in my favorite business book, Good to Great. You know, what makes the biggest and most successful companies um, who they are and, and, and to last from one generation to the next. It's about that core team, right? Always about that core team. Um, and can you filter from that core team down to create a culture that scales your business through people? And can you attract the right people? That's what it's all about. Team, 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 team. It almost sounds like the kind of the summation of what creates this successful founder is their ability to be a lifelong learner, always be testing and improving, always be others focused, have a, a great team around them. And 
the more I hear you talk about this, it's like all the ideals that so many people have. I think you and I talked about this on our first call, this idea or this myth that entrepreneurship is some shiny, grandiose adventure that's all easy and, you know, roses and butterflies and it's all about the founder. That's just complete that that from your seat at the table as as an investor, that's not what you're investing in. You're investing in someone who's others focused, who's others minded, who is continuously improving, who knows when they're wrong, who seeks advice, who brings a great group of people around them, which is literally the exact opposite of of what Hollywood has made entrepreneurship out to be. Absolutely. It's it's the old adage that you you are who you surround yourself with. Right? If you want to be a millionaire, hang out with millionaires. You want to be a sniveling, whining, you know, person, then you're going to hang out with snivelers and whiners. I love how you said person <laughs> instead of replacing it with something else. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trust me, the younger me had some other thoughts, but, um, you know, little bitch. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but no, look, in, in a great sports is always a great analogy because you look at, at, the, at the highest performing teams in sports and they're consistently always at the top. Right. You know, I'm a Bay Area guy, so I'm a big Warriors fan. You look at how functional that organization is from the top down. From Joe Lacob and his family, he was also a VC, ironically, down to uh, Bob Meyer, who's the president of the team, to Steve Kerr, who's the head coach and his staff, to attracting the best players and drafting the best players based on their culture and their attributes. Um, and look what, look at the success they have had. Look at it within any sport, right? What do you always have? You have a consistent core team at the top, um, who just does things differently. Um, and they, they're consistent around those things. Uh, and it's not any different. It's cause that's a business too. So good. So good. Well, I want to respect your time, Sean. I appreciate this insight so much. It's uh, not only helpful to me as a native digital myself, but I mean, seriously, I'm going to, once this is goes live, share this with every young founder I know, because they need, they need to know what it's like. I, I tell my friends all the time, like, imagine you're the one sitting in Sean's shoes. Imagine you're the one on the other side of the table. What would you say to yourself? And it's sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves in, in your shoes and hear what it's like to view ourselves from your perspective. So I, I'm so grateful. Thanks. For you well, for again, I just, I have both perspectives because I've been a founder. You've been there. And a funder, right? Uh, so yeah, I get it. I've, I've walked in the shoes for a long time. I hope, I hope some people get something good out of this. That was awesome. Well, you're welcome back anytime. And I, I appreciate it. Thank let's, you. let's help more founders, especially the native digital ones who you're right. Like they have this resilience, problem in some cases and in others you're just like wow the they're the resilience you can build from being a you know digital person putting up with the shit online is kind of in- incredible so i i just love what you're doing and well again, i would appreciate i everything. also would argue that there's value in being analog too 100 percent 100 percent we need both that yeah. that's what that's what the world is for yes thank you sean thank you hannah Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. 
Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye.